We apologize for this brief interruption in the show. As many of you likely know, the Higher Standard Podcast is officially sponsored by Transcend Company. Transcend has been my longtime provider for both testosterone and peptide therapies, but they offer so much more. Whether you're interested in health, wellness, or longevity, it all begins with you getting your blood work done. A lab draw will help you get the numbers and establish your baseline. You can go to transcendcompany.com slash THSP. That's transcendcompany.com slash THSP. Or you can click the link in the show notes on any streaming platform and on YouTube. Fill out your information and one of the representatives will contact you to get your journey started today. Now back to the show. <laughs> you know all I'm thinking about right now, too, <laughs> is interviewing... Oh, are you going to recording? Oh, you, yeah. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Press the clock. Yeah. Just, okay. Just make sure. So how so, soon after? No, go ahead. What? So I, I just, before we start the show. Go ahead. What are we What are we doing? Tell me about your day. My day? Yeah. My day? It was, it was a good day. Really? Yeah. It was good. Did you? Uh, how, was your, how was your day? I, my day was um, a little demotivational, if I'm being honest. Oh, okay. Uh, around, oh, I don't know, one o'clock. Uh, Eastern time or no Pacific time? Okay. I uh, had a couple meetings, and uh, it was a little discouraging after that. I got a lot of work to do, not enough time. Really? Yeah. Mm. Mm. <laughs> but your grace, your grace. <laughs> wow! <laughs> wow! Oh, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, Arun coming out firing. <sighs> God, yeah. get our first lawsuit from Arun. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like we should we should explain that on the show. At least no, 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 gotta, no. I mean, not yet. We got to find some tapered version. No, nothing. No, later we will. When All the right. time when the time is right. Well, the time apparently isn't right right now, but it's always wrong when it's right. No. <laughs> Look on your faces at all. Jesus Christ. <laughs> We're down to one show a week. You got to make this shit exhilarating. Miss- Come on, work <laughs> it up, man. What is it like midnight right now? It's late. I'm Mr. Right, not Mr. Right now. Yeah. All right. What yeah. numbers meeting? <laughs> yeah, what numbers meeting? Jesus, that was, that was that was a bad quote. Is it? Yeah. Because it's not the right quote. Fabulous said it the other way. Okay, well, uh, believe it or not, despite popular belief, this is the number one financial literacy uh, podcast in the world. Welcome back to the Higher Standard, kids. Let's go, baby. Sitting next to me, my partner in time, and obviously a fan of early 90s rap and hip-hop, the one and only Syed Omar. Sitting next to me on my left is my partner in crime, Chris Nahibi. Welcome back to the show, everybody. And behind the ones and twos, the man you know is DJ Room, but we lovingly call Grover now. No, that's you. That's not right, man. You fucking set me up. Dude. I did not. Well, you Dude, burner right? account, leaving a review. Honestly. Listen, if, if I had a burner account that was leaving reviews, it'd be far worse than Grover. And I got to be honest, I had never actually thought of your voice that way. But now that I've heard it, I can't unhear it. Mm. I actually watched Sesame Street's Grover like clips and w- was going to use it to ambush you, make fun of you later on. And I was like, this is too, this is too close. I can't. I can't do it. That, your laugh is so Grover, too. Uh. <laughs> It's a compliment, man. Kids all around the world grow up, you know, hearing your voice. Right. Not an insult. He didn't like it, man. You could tell this one kind of stung him a little yeah, bit. Yeah, why? I've been called far worse. No, that didn't even bother me. It's you and the fucking chicken leg and like, what are you eating now? What are you eating well, now? I, honestly, I didn't understand any of that. Why did you keep accusing him of eating a rotisserie chicken? <laughs> 
It was. I was lost. At least fried chicken or something. I was trying. Like, I was trying to piggyback on it and like <laughs> tag team the job. I was like, "Where's he going with this?" It just seems like one of those things where when you get to a point in life where you're just trying to eat anything, you go to the grocery store late at night and all they have left is those like warm rotisserie chickens. You just pick one of those up. Unless, yeah. I try to get creative on my insults because if I just say something like, "You know, oh, hey, you look fat today," like that's not a, that's not good. Do you use ChatGPT? Why rotisserie chicken? I really should though. Rotisserie chickens are for fat people? Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. I'm saying they're for lazy people. Lazy people. Yeah. Like, I used to do that when I was meal prepping. If you I, just shred the chicken better that way. Yeah, I would just pull the breast, pull the titties off the chicken and eat it. <laughs> you never called them chicken titties? Why not the legs? I don't like dark meat, bro. Whoa. See? It's too fatty. What are you, t- <laughs> what are you doing? I don't like it. It's fatty. It's you know exactly like what you're fibrous. doing. I just like chicken titties. One episode per week. What? Going all in. I'm going all in. Yeah. Make sure you get your money's worth. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. You know, you are paying a lot for this. We should start a subscription and make something ridiculous like five cents. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Just to piss people off. Okay. Well, uh, this show, we're taking a little bit of a, of a structured format because uh, believe it or not, Sight and Ruin think that I uh, tend to go off topic. I don't know where you get that from. It's good for the show, though. What? When you do occasionally. Going off topic? Yeah. You know, there's a wide disparity in people who listen to the show and say, you know what? Oh, God. He's back, baby. I didn't even remember this time. They say, you know what? Um, I like economics and finance, but I've never really felt good about it. But you guys make it fun and loose and light. It's great. Right. There's people who listen to the show and they say, hey, man, I, I love the dynamic. You guys seem like friends. It's cool. Like, I love listening to it. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. And then there's people who leave reviews who say, honestly, guys, like, if you guys could just spend a little bit more time on the 25% of financial shit that you actually you know, know about, right. this show could be incredibly more valuable. Mm-hmm. It's very confusing. Let's start with the review instead of ending it. You want to do that? All right. Producer of the show. Let's get right into it. Seems a little... Oh, wow. Right on the screen. Look at you. Oh, he's got it right here. Yeah. Oh, look. Move it to the far right. Oh, there you go. Oh, actually, uh, Saeed reads the reviews. If you ever watch a show, you would know that that's his job. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. This from Jeff Boyardee. See what he did there? You know, you know it's uh, Jeff yeah. Boyardee. <laughs> Jeff. My name Jeff. Five stars. Great content and humor. Hey, guys. I like this. He's like writing, I mean, us, he's writing us a letter. Great content and humor. Yeah. I've been listening to your podcast and love the collabs with Baller Buster. Okay. All right. Mainly Salamandran. Stud of a guy. Yeah, Alejandro's a good dude. Yeah, really, really good yeah. dude. I like the content as well. The one criticism, hopefully constructive, okay, is that you guys are so knowledgeable. This feels like a disclaimer. Anytime someone says hopefully constructive, <laughs> it's a kick right in the ding-ding afterwards. And, when they, yeah. and then they started with a little bit of a compliment. They're like, I want you to get ready for the blow that's about to come. So he said Chris is so knowledgeable. And what else did he say? <laughs> And have interesting perspectives and think there can be more dialogue discussion on the meat and potatoes of a given podcast episode. And don't meat and potatoes. Mm. <laughs> got that. <laughs> if you're gonna play into it, dude, just you can't complain whenever I say you got a rotisserie chicken back there, okay? Of a given podcast episode and don't need to have 75% just banter. See, I feel like there's a lack of appreciation of the level of banter. Well, I mean, let's be honest. Other than the fact that he absolutely knew what we had for dinner the other night. Um, right. Hawaiian ribeyes and potatoes. Although he did have pork ribs. I can't let that go. They were the, 
Adam, what's the um Hello? There it is. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe mix in the humor and jokes throughout. I figured I can listen to the first twenty five percent, but may not necessarily need to keep listening to the last seventy five. Anyway, I'll still be listening regardless. Jeff, not from 21 Jump Street. My name's Jeff. You will always be 21 Jump Street, Jeff. Well, Jeff, uh, to that I would say, uh, we. I think he sounds like he's talking about in a linear fashion. Like the first 25% of the actual show has the articles and the rest of it, 75% can be dialogue and discussions. Mm -hmm. We do try to weave it in between, I guess, the episodes uh, and, and the content that we bring up. But uh, one of the things I will admit that it can become challenging. Whenever we have really, really heavy episodes on content, we know we are not a news outlet, right? Like that, that's not us. Right. If you're looking for breaking news, if this is where you're getting it from, lots of life choices. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, we got to go over some things. Yeah, probably not us. Uh, but we are trying to break down stuff and kind of get out of the way of the disinformation and get rid of the bias and just talk about things that are real um, and be objectively neutral about it. But to do that... And do that in rapid succession, almost devalues it. So we do try to weave in the commentary and jokes in between. I will say that Arun uh, and the rest of us have embraced the beginning of the show being a little bit of dialogue and banter and the last part of the show being dialogue and banter. And we feel like if you really give a damn about our lives and we have somehow connected with you, you'll probably stay for the last, call it 10 minutes. We don't really aim for 75% of the show to be banter, but the last 10 minutes to be more conversational. So, that, you know. We're opening up being sincere, and by we, I mean Arun and myself, because we know that Saeed doesn't do that. That's not true. Oh, I'm sorry. Tell us about how amazing a father you are. <laughs> I've read your bio today. My bio? Hey, how about we talk how great of an uncle I am? Amazing uncle? You are. An ex Honestly, hands down, the one thing I can never take away from you is you are a fucking fantastic uncle. Amazing uncle. It's impressive. He picked Thank up the kids you. from school today. Did he really? Yeah. Wow. Took them to Chuck E. Cheese. Where were you? Nine to five. <laughs> I was at the office. <laughs> oh, that's incredibly thoughtful of you. Uh, did you take just the two kids by yourself, or were your kids there too? My kids were there too. It was Miriam's first time, or Zara too. Oh, um, at well, my wife went with me. It was actually her idea. She was like, "It was a rainy day. The kids probably didn't step outside. Let's take them somewhere they can actually run and have fun." Yeah, there yeah. you go. And it was very rainy today. I was worried too about very this week. Moist. And this this Chuck E. Cheese thing didn't help because my sister was visiting in town from North Carolina. So it was just jam-packed fun all weekend for them. It looks like it continued on to Monday. I'm like, oh, God, Tuesday's going to be rough. Yeah. Hey, kids, you're going to school, coming home, doing homework. And then um, that's it. Dude, sec <laughs> second grade, no homework. What is this? What? Yeah. He doesn't have any homework. I, I guess it's a thing. He's not in Kumon? <laughs> no, he's not in Kumon. Why not? He's already in honors. He doesn't need Kumon. You're doing a lot of hand gestures and slapping him on that, that chair tonight. Yeah, it's, 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 I'm trying to share. Honestly, Jeff's probably tuned out. He's like, God damn it, they front-loaded the 75% now. <laughs> They're not listening. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's tell you about what you are going to get from the show tonight, okay? 2023 was the worst year to buy a house since the 1990s, but there's hope for 2024. I love the optimism in articles. I really do. <laughs> But damn, and I, I gotta be honest, I was I was selective about tonight's articles because I've seen a lot of shit talking about the housing market as of late, and it's really really repetitive, almost the exact same stuff you got in early twenty twenty three, except saying unlike twenty twenty three, twenty four is gonna be better, you know, and it's right. 
we try to be selective. Um, these two articles have a lot of a, a good data, particularly the second one here. December home sales slumped to close out the worst year since 1995. Damn, man. So, ironically, both titles said the same thing. Mm -hmm. But one had a positive spin. The other had a negative spin. You think that's a strategic approach by that outlet? Absolutely. Uh, certain outlets are, are more known for it than other outlets. But I think the unfortunate reality is, is that you get people who have a confirma confirmation bias. There are people who are like, I believe the market's going to be good. I'm going to read that article because there's hope for 2024. Right. And there's people who are like, you know what? I see a lot of warning signs. The market's going to be shit. I'm going to read that article about the worst year since 1995. So I know about all the bad shit I can cite to my friend who thinks it's going to be amazing. Yeah. And that, unfortunately, that's the dichotomy of interest that you have. If people want to make it political. I don't, I don't know that, that I would go that far. I think it's just more of like people look out for the kind of data that appeals to them and people want confirmation bias. Yes. So uh, moving on, we'll talk about the market. Repo market may throw a fit spur fed uh, to action. Mm -hmm. uh, long story short, the repo market is really liquidity in the market. And uh, it's going to be an interesting conversation because most people don't know about repos. I'm going to read directly from the article on a couple things. But uh, this, uh, in conjunction with the bond market, and they are somewhat related, uh, to me, really, really scary. I think this is probably going to put the most amount of pressure on the Fed to cut rates uh, whenever they ultimately cut rates because I think this is where things are going to unwind the quickest. Okay. Uh, and I've heard a lot of people that are much smarter than me talk about the repo market and the bond markets having a lot of issues there. And there are some things you have likely heard about but don't really realize impacts the bond market and subsequently the repo market as well. Okay. Uh, then we'll round out the show with uh, here's why it's so important to start saving and investing in your 20s. We are going to do a deep dive here inside specific requests before we even get there is that Chris cannot be COO, Chris. He's got to be the thug life, Chris. Thug, yeah, break this shit down. Speak See, to your peers. What I was trying to say was, like, you got to put a cap on it, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's what something that Sal says all the time, right? On Mind Pump, Mind Pump, Mind Pump. What does he say? He says, uh, speak to your audience, not your peers. So you typically speak to analysts on Wall Street, right? We're trying to speak to 20-year-olds here who are not analysts on Wall Street. Actually, I speak to you. <laughs> pretty pretty frequently, but you are a Nobel laureate in the making. Someday. Yeah. One of the times, right? And, and he teaches kids in Sesame Street all the time. <laughs> you think if JP gets out of this with a softy, he gets a he gets the the laureate? Nod? Dude, some of the articles that are being written right now, which suggest that we may have found a pathway out of this, are really leaning hard and oh my god, it's amazing. That's actually a fascinating conversation. I feel like what. If he does somehow achieve a soft landing out of this, mm -hmm. right? We know that that just sets us up for a greater fall later. Where and, and that's the disconnect people have, right? Yeah. Where maybe it's more beneficial to go through some of that now, so it won't be so hard later. Well, and so let's get before we get into the housing article. Let, let's let's look at some tangible, real, tactile things that I've seen, especially this last weekend. So this last weekend in Southern California, it was raining a lot. It was. A whole lot. It's a little uncomfortable. Yeah. It be was a boy. A, what? It was a little uncomfortable for me. Why? I just don't like driving in the rain. So don't drive in the rain. <laughs> I got to. Turn the fireplace on in your palazzo and what, what was your butler's name again? <laughs> I did turn the fireplace on. Your butler turned it on? No. <laughs> like, did you physically turn it on or did you say, hey, what's his name? George? George, can you light the fireplace? Yeah. Sure. I, I mean, I'm just trying to ask. I don't know where you're going with this. My butler? Yeah. That's not believable. Why? Why not? What do you mean? 
In a state as large as yours, and you maintain it on your own? Come on, man. That's admirable. 1,900 square feet? In the living room, right? No. No. <laughs> I'm just trying to be clear. Are you laughing at yeah, Because he's seen your house. He knows how big it is. <laughs> I'm just saying. It's a big house. I'll say this. I do know Three some, stories. I do know somebody that just bought a home. Yeah. Where their uh, primary bedroom, not their master bedroom. 4,000 square feet. Yeah, tell Cypress says, hey, what's up? <laughs> what's up, dog? Can you come yeah, on the show? There's only one. Yeah. <laughs> there's only one. Okay, well, so several months ago, uh, particularly call it around October, November, uh, people were doing open houses in the neighborhood. And one realtor that I know very well was lamenting uh, just a couple weeks ago that he only had three or four people come to his open house all weekend long. Sunny, beautiful weather weekend. Wow. And I talked to him this weekend, and he said that he had an open house again this weekend in the rain. And I'm like, oh, man, that's got to that's gotta suck. And he's like, dude, it was nonstop people coming in. Why? And I'm like, why? how many how many offers did you get? And he goes, uh, by tonight, I've gotten 18. I've got six more coming in. And I'm like, what was your list price? And he goes, well, I would say this thing probably in a normalized economy would comp out at like $699, $695. He's like, our list price was $840. And I'm like, where are your offers at? He's like, $950. Oh, my God. And I'm like, dude, is it worth $950? And he goes, no, did no. He, did you have any conversations where... You got a. You could tell this was like investor money, or he said he didn't think any of it was investor money. He said that everybody came in was couples, and they'd been waiting to see on the sidelines, and the rates dipped, and they just thought that this was their opportunity, and there was tons of people there. He said he showed me photos. Like there was literally like just people waiting outside to get in. Damn, that's how, I mean it was unbelievable. Check back in with them after. Want to know what it appraised at? Yeah, I would. I don't know. He he said he didn't. He, there's no way it could appraise over like seven fifty. That was that was his. Wow. Yeah. He said it needs work. He's like, dude, like I didn't put a whole lot of thought into it. I, was like, I didn't think anybody was coming to the open house, frankly. All right. So, and that, that kind of hysteria is not good for the economy. Okay. That, that kind of like, I need to buy, like that kind of lack of supply, frankly. So it drives prices up in this case. That is ac absolutely accurate. It's not good. Well, according to NPR, 2023 was the world's, world's. <laughs> it was the worst year to buy a house since the 1990s. But there's hope for 2024. Clearly the optimistic article. Uh, the article goes on to cite something that you probably already heard about. The lock-in effect. Yep. It's something that I wanted to put in the show. I know I, I we've, could, Well, it's because you structured it this way. Right. <clears throat> we've put this in. We've mentioned this many, many times on the show before. The lock-in effect is where homeowners are reluctant to sell their property due to various reasons. One of those reasons is mortgage rates. So... We know that 90% of people with mortgages right now have a rate of 6% or less, right? Yep. So if you can't find something, uh, if rates don't go down far enough, because you got to remember, sellers ultimately become buyers. So if they're going to sell their home, they're going to need to buy something. And why would they go into something with a higher interest rate and ultimately pay more and also not get a house the same size or comparable to the one you just sold? So a couple scenarios where that does happen. Number one, the 40% of the homes in this country are owned in cash. That is still a very compelling number as far as <coughs> I'm concerned. Sorry. And uh, as you should be, sir. As you should be. You're coughing during... We got to figure out what's making you cough in here. It's it's something in the studio, man. Okay, no, that's not true. Chris? Uh-oh. <laughs> he was coughing the whole ride here, too. Was I? Oh, yeah, you were. Oh, now it's a subcon... You told me last week when we recorded... I didn't notice. Did I really? Yeah. So then last week when you said you didn't cough all of the whole day until you got in the studio, that was also wrong then, too. No. Last week, it's different. He was not coughing. This time, he was coughing the whole drive. Have you considered 
And I'm sorry, Jeff, 75%. Just keep in mind. Uh-huh. Uh, have you considered that maybe you're just recovering from a respite? Because RSV was going around for a while. Maybe. Maybe this is like a Possibly. story viral thing. I got an ace up my sleeve that I can, I, I've had that I want to, I could share now too. So, <laughs> Odin wants to throw me under the bus. Did he tell you that uh, baby Miami had a, <laughs> had a fever before coming here? Tonight? Tonight. <laughs> the whole house is sick. You took your daughter to Disney to Chuck E. Cheese today. Yeah. With fever? <laughs> it with wasn't Miami, it was Zorro. Why? Why why do you hate me? Why do you you know me? I had a shit day, bro. Like, why? Oh, dude, I'm sorry. This is I too good to distance. pass. This is too good to pass up. Did you at least coat his ass in some like Clorox no, or something? I sat in the car and he told me too. I'm like, oh hell no. You're gonna go down with me. Bro, we're down to once a week. What are we going to do? Cancel? Bro, if I get fucking sick this week, I'm telling you right now, I'm going to record a solo podcast by myself. Okay? No, don't do that. Some, some, oh, you hey, don't want me to do that. Hey, Trust some, me, thickness. Some of the listeners might want that. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you had to find a way to weave it in somehow, didn't you? <laughs> just <a> little, just, <laughs> yeah. All right. So the lock-in effect, if we could focus for a minute. God damn it. I already feel sick around. Um there are people in the real estate space who believe that you're going to see downward pressure on rates as the Fed cuts the Fed funds rate. I do not believe that's going to be the case, but I've seen a number of predictions as of late which show a five-handle possible on mortgage rates, a 30-year mortgage rates by the end of 2024. If that were to occur, that is one thing that could break the lock-in effect. It's so close to where the average is because most people are below 6% that that may have a significant movement to break that. I right. don't personally see that happening, mm-hmm. but that is a possibility. Home builders are also part of this equation. Uh, they've had a hard time predicting values of what they are building because there's economic lot, uncertainty, baby. Right, there's a lot of fluctuations going on, right, in the economy with what's going on with GDP. you got un, un, like clear what's going to happen with unemployment rates, and the impact to the real estate market is... Um, uncertain how this impacts everybody. So I would say that's where we get a weird paradigm here. Every time you talk about a recessionary economy, what happens over and over and over and over again is somebody inevitably will say, dude, the housing market's super strong, man. Unemployment's low. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, wait a minute. Hold on a second, bro. First of all, not all recessions are housing recessions. As a matter of fact, most recessions are not housing recessions. Right. So just because the last one and the second largest one that we actually lived through aside from 2020, let's ignore that one because it's a bullshit recession. Right. In 2008, the Great Recession uh, had a huge impact on houses and the mortgage industry and lending. Does not mean that that will lead the way in this instance. So stop citing that as the backbone of your conversation. And, and I don't think that'll happen this time again or any time again in the near future because credit quality has gotten a lot better since then. Borrowers are getting vetted out much better. Right with the Dodd Frank Act mm-hmm. and having to show their ability to repay. Yeah. Okay. So the quality of the credit is much better. Another reason why I don't see 2024 being a better year is that consumer confidence is still unwavering. Right. Like they don't really know where where it's going to go. If you feel like we're at the top of the market, then you're not going to go in and start buying. Right. So because you would think that if you did buy, you'd become underwater real quick. So let me give some perspective here. Number one, when the home builders 
are more worried about the economy and uncertain about the future than the consumers are. Yeah. That's a weird thing. That's not normal. Generally speaking, the home builder is like, it's fucking amazing. Bye, 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 bye. We're going to build, we're going to build, we're going to build. And they're like, oh shit, people aren't buying anymore. Right. For them to be on the front lines of this going like, you know, wait a minute. This stuff all looks weird. Uh, we should, we should, we should see how this plays out a little bit. And for the consumers to go, bye, 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 and flood open houses where they are. Mm-hmm. That's weird. And that's kind of something you're seeing now more than ever. The Dow close up again, second day in a row, record number close. And you're seeing the stock market peak and everyone's like, oh my God, we're back, baby, back. And I literally turned around when the market closed today at one o'clock, looked out the window and thought to myself, wow, I have to pee. And that's when you walked in. And then I thought, this is, this is very, very wrong. And people don't realize, and a lot of people don't realize, look at recessionary economies going back. I want to say the 1970s. Market rallies preceding recessionary economies are very, very common. I thought we'd already gotten to the part where we'd seen the maximum rally, and now we're seeing this because 2024 started off really bad in the markets. Right. It was a pretty bad series of events, almost eviscerating some of the values that you got from the first year. One of the bad worst starts to a year in, I think, decades. That being said, now you're seeing the Dow close the historic highs. There's lots of optimism in the market, and I, 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 don't, I don't get it, especially with global events happening like you quoted here in the notes, the, the Ukraine-Russian war. You've got... Israel, Palestine, you got Iran and the Houthis now, mm-hmm. which nobody's ever said this. That's a terrible terrorist name. <laughs> yeah, we don't know what it means still, right? Houthis for life. You know, <laughs> yeah, can't support that. Houthis doesn't it sounds like an STD. I'm not going to support that. You get the Houthis? No, I'm not down with the Houthis. I know who does have the Houthis. Yeah. Ready or not? Arun, how long you had the foot Houthis? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, it's a terrible name. But to, Chris, to Chris's point, all the home builders saw back during the pandemic with these geopolitical events that, that could go on or a pandemic like, right, that could really impact their supply chain, right? So it disrupts that. Next thing you know, prices of these things go up, harder for them to price out the home that they're building. You know, it's wild to me to think that people argue, God, somebody made a really messed up comment on social media the other day. Uh, this isn't the effect of like, you know, when I was a kid, I had to save and I had to work hard and, and I, and I, it was a total boomer comment. Right. And I'm sitting here going like, okay, wait a minute. When you were a kid, okay. Going, fuck it. In the 1970s, let's just say there, mm-hmm. I want to say home values were about <sighs> kind of like three X, like the average wage yes, like number was. somewhere in there. Yeah, Maybe, maybe even two. Yeah. And then now we're talking like closer to 12. No, six. No, I think it's closer to 12. It's six. I think it's six. Whatever. It's significantly larger. Oh, the room's pulling up some data. Mm. Despite this, the average home price in the 1970 era was only $23,000. However, by the end of the decade, home prices had risen to an average of $62,000. So we both could be right. Is that less than the salary you pay for George the butler? <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> Why? Just George? George. Of all the names. I feel like you would be a George guy. Jeffrey. I'm a Jeffrey guy. Don't fresh prince me, bro. Come, come on, bro. Come on, man. So we've now read the optimistic article. That is, the, opt- that is the optimistic article. There was something in the article that I thought was interesting that I hadn't really thought of before. Is that they did cite also zoning issues and how strict cities are with zoning issues. Yeah. So remember, with certain zoning issues, 
uh, or certain zones, right? The city requires you to build a home to a certain density level. It's certain regions are have maximum density requirements. Like if you go to Irvine, for example, Irvine mm -hmm. is a high density area. They've gone from what was then like largely single family residents detached to mm -hmm. mostly attached single family residences because they got increased zoning in their right. city. But you also can't build a home like significantly smaller than the rest of the homes. And for it to be somewhat affordable for borrowers out there, maybe that's what home builders need to do. Right. But unfortunately, they can't because because of zoning laws. Yeah, and that's the one thing that I think people don't understand about the whole like, oh, you know, the 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 office space market can we can we can rezone and blah, blah. Dude, there's a lot of political red tape. And let's be honest, when have the politicians ever gotten it right or right fast enough? Yeah, I will say I don't like a lot of California politics, almost all of California politics. But the one thing California's done right recently was adding the ADU like uh, expedited process to, to get mm -hmm. an additional dwelling unit or whatever the hell like, what to call it the additional dwelling unit on your property if you can qualify for one and you have a space yes to add an extra unit now is super easy in California mm -hmm. and I think in a lot of ways that helps out but what I would love to see is the same expedited process to take office space and then reuse and repurpose it for multifamily apartment complexes man but that would require so much liquidity well yeah I'm not I'm not solving the problem here. I'm just, you know. At a time when the Fed's taking out all the liquidity. All the liquidity. Man, but that's that segues for later. Yeah, that wasn't a good. I don't know that you can bank segues for later. <laughs> can I? I don't think Is that's that what I was trying to so, do there. I've seen a number of podcasts in my day. I think in this particular instance that that's probably not 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 the best use not of the, the best? segue. Yeah. We'll bring it back. Okay, so going to the CNBC article. This is what I like to call the not-so-positive Housing article, December home sales slumped to close out the worst year since 1995. Why you say that like you're so proud? I feel like 1995 was a good year. 1995 was a good year. Good vintage. Really? Yeah. All right. I was 13. You were what? 15. Okay. Yeah. I was nine. Mmm. Let's so much to say there. Yeah. Sales of previously owned homes fell 1% in December compared with November to a seasonally adjusted annualized rate of 3.78 million units, according to the National Association of Realtors. Sales were 6.2% lower than in December of 2022, making the lowest level since August of 2010. And I want to pause there because I think there's something very valuable in that statement. We were talking about how home values didn't go down. They rose up. Look how little transactions are actually occurring, though. Right. Just because you're taking way less transactions and the average number goes up or down, I think in my mind is disingenuous. Okay. You can't say the housing market's great because values are going up if way less homes are trading. Absolutely, yeah. The numbers are skewed differently. Yeah. There's just a lot less there to take an average of. So in my mind, that's one of the big disconnects from the data that we see. Yes, the home values are going up, and yes, there's less supply in the market, so there's more demand for those properties and the time on the market, maybe this or that. But if significantly less homes are trading because people either aren't selling or aren't buying, then in my mind, that should be referenced when you talk about home values went up that year. And it's something we have mentioned a lot on the show before is just because home prices are what they are, like people's lives are still going forward. There's still going to be buyers out there, right? So it's going to negatively impact some of this data. And we cited an article where 
a lot of buyers now are getting help from their parents. Yeah, man. A lot. Living with their parents, getting help from their parents. And the parents have equity in their own homes to tap into, to help out. God, God bless those parents, man. Yeah. My dad was like, you want what? Really? No. no. And you know, the sad part is people Google my name, and that's one of the common phrases is, you know. No, your, I've, I've, don't take this from me. Your dad's an awesome dad, and he would have 100% helped you had you asked. You just worked hard to do it yourself. I don't think he was in the position to help me at the point in time. He would have found a way. Maybe, but I, I, I did it all on my own, man, and, and it was scary. I learned a lot. Yeah, man, we'll get into that in the, in the things to invest in before the 20 section. Oh, I, Ooh, I like that. Okay. Yeah. All right. For the full year, sales uh, for 2023 uh, came in at only 4.09 million units, the lowest tally since 1995. That is low. That is really low for the amount <laughs> Dude, of people out there. Your color commentating right tonight is not good. Well, I don't know if you're going to stop reading or not. That is low, Cotton. <laughs> that is low. Well, there's only 1.5 million homes listed for sale. All right. So, I mean, how do you expect that number to go up much higher? Regionally, on a month-to-month basis, sales were unchanged in the Northeast and fell 4.3% in the Midwest. Okay, see where you're at. Your sister was saying that she had not been seeing prices drop. Yeah, my sister's also deep in the realtor space. Like, she's deep. She's ingratiated. But numbers are numbers. I'll tell you how deep my sister is in the realtor space. She pays for a mentor slash coach to coach her on how to speak to clients or what i'm not really sure because every time she brings it up i want to cuss so i just don't bring it up really i'm like oh how's it going she's like we should go really well you want to talk about it? i'm like nope no as does not man well i mean the best way to get is through experience of course but and she's experienced but uh she feels that it's a value add so good for her. I'm, not, her I'm not bashing all of them. Keeps her sharp. I don't know. Maybe keeps her questioning herself. I, I look at it as like, you know what? It's just a networking thing for you, isn't it? Oh, okay. It's just another way to get networking. Mm. That's my guess. Sales were down 2.8% in the South, but rebounded 7.8% in the West. On a year-over-year basis, sales were lower in all regions. Yeah, man. The count of home closings is based on contracts likely signed in late October and November, when mortgage rates were considerably higher than they are right now. Mm -hmm. Hence the flood this last weekend in homes. The average rate on the 30-year fixed loan rose to about 8% in October before falling to the 7% range in November. It is now at 6.89%. That's how different a day makes. And I mean, I checked it today before coming in. It's at 6.6% based on Freddie Mac. Freddie Mac. Yeah. So you are seeing uh, a creep down. I think that was expected, frankly. I think um, I think that, that that's very much to be expected in the markets with all this uncertainty and turmoil. But certainly you're going to see that change, I think, in the, in the coming weeks and months, particularly ahead of uh, the interest rate cut. There'll be a lot of volatility. We call it volatility this year. I think we're going to see a lot more volatility throughout the year. I think there's going to be a lot of strange things happening. You had some notes here after this talking about the understanding the 2836 rule. Yeah, something something that I thought that was worth getting into because it did kind of talk about, you know, front-end ratio, back-end ratios. Yeah. <laughs> Which as an underwriter, that's how, for people out there that don't know, that's how the underwriters look at uh, whether you qualify for a loan or not. Um, using the front-end ratio and back-end ratio, the ratios are actually different. This ratio is really to explain what you should be 
exam when you're examining your finances to see if you can afford the home, right? Is the twenty eight thirty six rule. Um, your meaning your mortgage payment should not exceed twenty eight percent of your total monthly gross income. Now, more by mortgage payment, they mean principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. Mm-hmm. So you take your gross income that you're making and you uh, just make you divide it by twelve and you try to make sure that your that payment is less than twenty eight percent. That's considered your front end ratio. The back end ratio is when you take in all your debts. So your auto loan payment, your credit card payments as well. If you have, um, let's just say, a bed that you financed, right? You got to factor in that payment as well. That's a random ass thing to use as an example. A bed that you finance? Uh, people finance beds, yeah. Especially if you get a really a baller one, like a, oh, like, a, so. like, a sleep, like a sleep number. I mean, you do have a big ass house that makes a lot of sense. We do have. I'll say we do have a sleep number. I know. Yeah, that's great. You probably have a massive TV screen in your bedroom too, like a projection or something, right? Well, <laughs> see, what are you doing here? That that all in cost me uh, like seven hundred bucks that I've I'm, recycled from home to home. I'm just speculating. <clears throat> My wife and I never wanted a TV in our room because we didn't want that to be accessible. So instead, like you wanted a wall. So we wanted a room <laughs> to where we can uh, watch a movie in bed with the kids, and it's more family bonding time. Mm. Yeah. It sounds. I highly recommend this. By the way, it's one of the best investments. It's my favorite thing to do at the house on the weekends with the kids. Movie in bed on a projector screen. That's a big. It sounds like a big ass. I, I don't have enough room for projector screen in my in my tiny conservative. Yes, you do. I have a queen size bed for my wife and I. What size is your bed? My bed's a king. California king or regular king? I don't need the California king. I'm what? not that tall. Uh but you could have fit it in the room. It's better to just get a normal king to fit like both kids in the bed. Right. You just you opted not to get the bigger size because it was more convenient for you, but had the option to get it, but chose not to because. What are you doing? What are we painting out here? I my entire when you get your custom bedroom, bed, I want you to know I'm coming for you. My entire bedroom is the size of a California king. That's not. That's, not, that's a lie. It is. That's a lie. That's not, dude. I. I challenge you to fit one in my bedroom. So the 36th portion of this rule is when you take in all those debt payments, including that mortgage payment, and it should be only 36% of your gross monthly income. That's considered the back-end ratio. Now, sadly, I would say that few people actually obtain those numbers. Especially um, today's day and age with the 6.6 mortgage rate. Yeah, getting a 55% back-end ratio is not wildly uncommon these days. But are people, I mean, we know that um, lenders are tightening their guidelines are they yeah. really going up to 55% for a back-end ratio? I think if you have good, strong credit and you have good post-close liquidity, you have enough money to put down, and you've got six months of principal interest taxes insurance post-close, and maybe, I think they might, yeah. And they're analyzing the industry that you work in maybe to make sure you've been at, at the job for at least two years. Consistency, stability. If you're not in the same job, at least you're in the same industry for a prolonged period of time, yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, the- but look, you want to live comfortably too. You also don't want to get too big of a house. Right to where now you're, you know, pinching pennies. Clearly, I don't have that problem. <laughs> yeah, I know you ball so hard. No, I I've got a seventeen hundred dollar month. You don't have a problem because yeah. you don't have to pinch pennies. No, I, I bought a house that was very conservative mm-hmm. for three hundred twenty five thousand, technically three fifty with a twenty five thousand dollars seller's credit. Okay, and uh, I have a very conservative mortgage payment relative to my income. Yes. Mm. Who else is looking at things conservatively? Well, uh, I know you're trying to segue. Uh, unfortunately, 
because Arun is really slow at moving across the section fumbling here. The, <laughs> I have no idea. Is <laughs> 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 this your tenth of the repo, repo market? How is that conservative? What do you mean? How was it supposed to segue? That's a repo market. Because of what the Fed's doing. They're being conservative. They want to make sure they're continuing their quantitative tightening, but they're going to be forced to take action. Oh, you read the article? I did. Yeah, I didn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that's good to know. Okay, well, apparently Saeed knows what we're talking about here. Uh, from Reuters, in the market, repo market may throw a fit, spur Fed to action. So I know a number of people in Wall Street who are, frankly, freaking out about how the U.S. short-term financing markets are, are acting. And that's really your repo market. It's really what supplies the liquidity in the market for things like banks. Mm -hmm. Care to uh, give your take-home thoughts on what you read? No, no. I want you to explain to people first what the repo market is. So I'm going to do a, a terrible job uh, explaining what it is. So I'm going to read a quote directly from the article because I think it's valuable on some level, at least at least in helping to articulate it better than I can, and then I'm going to explain a little bit of that. So okay. um, for those of you who don't know, uh, a series of events which are expected to occur between March and May, some of which will reduce the amount of cash in the financial system, while others increase the demand for liquidity, according to uh, the interviews uh, with four banking executives by Reuters. Okay, And one thing that I want to know before you go on, remember, this quantitative tightening process has allowed the Fed to remove approximately 90 $5 billion a month. Yes, and that's going to become a point later on here. So there's two, two kind of real issues that are looming for this. Issue number one, a Fed lending facility that was put in place after the regional banking crisis last year will expire in March with $129 billion outstanding. I know that sounds like a lot. And a lot of people who are like, banks are evil. They're the devil. They make all this money because they've got these loose practices and they're, they're the bad guy. <laughs> It's, it's, I hear it all the time on social media. I would say we, we shouldn't really demonize people. Again, I am a banker. I, I get that. But if people are playing the game the way the system is set up to be played, you can choose to hate them for it, or you can say, this is the system. I got to play the game the way they play it. Right. Obviously, I chose the latter one. Self-serving as it may be. Sound like uh, your boy Donald. Yeah, well, okay. When, when, when Hillary was trying to come after him for not paying any taxes, he's like, yeah, because of the tax code that you put in place. See, that's, like, I don't, I don't always agree with a lot of things that Donald Trump said, but that's one of those things where he's a large real estate landowner and that's, that's the passive income benefit. I agree. It's not fair. Right. But this is also why so many people own real estate. There's lots of tax benefits in doing so. Right. Like, I don't know, lowering your tax basis. Yeah. Or, you know, cashing on that depreciation. Is it fair? No. Is it the law? Yes. Right. So what do you do? You start buying land as soon as you can, like in your early 20s. In your early 20s? Yeah. Look at that. That's a segue to the future, kids. So I would also say about the $129 billion that's outstanding, it's a little bit uh, confusing. That Fed facility was actually cheaper than borrowing from other, other sources that banks typically borrow from, like the Federal Home Loan Bank. For the purpose of this conversation, don't worry about it. Just know this. The Fed facility that was put in place to shore, shore up the idea of this banking run, this contagion period with this this crisis that we had in March, right? Yeah, at the time when everyone's afraid and the, this is the action the Fed took to calm everybody. Right. It gave banks access to funds for cheaper than it would be to borrow from the places. So banks were like, oh, wait a minute, hold on a second. I can borrow from my normal facility for 5%, but I could borrow from your Fed funds facility for like 4% and some change. But why would banks even need to borrow? Well, technically speaking, arbitrage is the easy answer, Okay. right? 
Banks don't need to borrow, but if you can borrow it, call it four and some change, and I can go into treasuries and make 6%. Mm-hmm. Now I've made 1%, 2% on, let's say, $100 million that I borrowed or $200 million that I borrowed. Right. That's just extra income, man. Right, and you got to remember, these banks have to show that they're still turning a profit. Otherwise, if they don't, during that time, there would have been a run on their bank, mm-hmm. right? So I know a lot of people have cited this particular facility saying, oh, my God, there's going to be this whole like government bailout of banks again because they're just going to forgive all this debt in the, in the facility. I don't see that happening. I think this has been over leveraged because it was just cheaper. I see. Uh, okay, moving on. That will remove what has become an attractive source of funding for banks. You don't say. Mm-hmm. Uh, another market backstop called the Standing Repo Facility, SRF, that Fed officials have held up as safe as a safety net, uh, has seen only a few banks sign up so far. So banks weren't even tapping into it. wasn't economically viable. The mm-hmm. Fed funds facility was cheaper. Right. So why would you go to a more expensive facility when you go to a cheaper facility and borrow? So, yeah, why did they have both? Well, the repo facility was in place long before the long Fed before. Ones. Yeah. At the same time, the demand for cash is likely to increase with the issuance of massive quantities of U.S. government debt and quarterly tax payments due on March 15th and annual payments due on April 15th. In addition, a move in May toward faster settlement of trades could increase demand for short-term funding as firms are not fully prepared to make the transition would need more overnight financing. Mm. So let's let's uh let's just shore this up here with a nice little Okay, so this is gonna be the best technical explanation for repo agreement I can give you. Um uh, and then I'll break it down. Okay. Any stress is likely to show up in the short term financing markets. Interest rates in repurchase agreements or repos, where investors borrow against treasuries and other collateral, spiked briefly at the end of November and December. While market participants initially attributed the increase to other factors, the banker said liquidity has been coming into sharper focus. Again, we'll quote some an expert, somebody far smarter than me. Liquidity could start to show some cracks as funding needs continue to grow because we're pulling all this liquidity out of the system. Mm-hmm. What are consumers going to do? They're saying, okay, well, banks aren't paying as much as like treasuries are now. I'm going to go back into the market. There's, I think we caught sight on a previous show, there's like 88 something billion dollars or something like that. Yeah, but can we explain to the listeners too? how liquidity actually gets taken out of the market please well when so when the when the fed has this in place and when these banks have to repay some of this debt to the yep. fed right mm-hmm. and the fed is no longer printing money if you will or you know giving out more loans you know to like when they set the rates higher it, it de-incentivizes banks to come to them right so as banks are paying them off and rates are being higher Banks aren't borrowing more. That money that came in is no longer getting pushed out. Exactly. So going back to it's more economically borrowed, viable for a bank to borrow and arbitrage the money. Yes. When that ceases to be the case because rates have gone up for them, right. they no longer borrow the money. Right. And when they no longer have that liquidity, it doesn't go back and it doesn't go find its way back into the market because they won't be lending that liquidity out. So to make this thing real simple to you is as rates start to rise in this repo market, and as the bond market starts to be challenged by things like, I don't know, Jane Frazier over at Citi saying, you know what? Up until now, we at Citibank have been the largest financer of municipal municipalities. Okay. Schools, government agencies, uh, cities. Right. 
fire departments, things that the government needs to build out their infrastructure. And we have financed this in the form of bonds. Yes. Municipal bonds. Citibank was the largest person in this market by far. They were the biggest player. Jane Fraser unilaterally and summarily shut down their entire municipal financing division early in the year as part of her giant city restructure. And they are now starting to sell these bonds into the market. If the largest holder and purchaser of these bonds in the market starts selling into the market, mm -hmm. that's going to have an implication to the bond market. Absolutely. So if you're the Fed, there's almost no rhetoric in the Beige Book, which is their kind of look behind the curtain, if you will. Okay. You get to see what the Fed's thinking. Oh, shit. Jesus. Oh, my God. We're talking a lot about sausages here. Their peeping yeah. Tom version. Yeah. yeah, the peeping Tom version. You can look in the Beige Book and see what they're really talking about what their thoughts are on some of the things in the, in the economy. They don't talk a lot about this, but I guarantee you this will probably be the biggest weight on them to cut rates between the the repo market, right? Okay. These repurchase contracts costing everybody more, more money for short-term, right? right? More expensive for, for people to borrow short-term. Then the bond market and bond prices pushing up. We know that if the 10-year treasury bonds increase, that puts upward pressure on mortgage rates. On mortgage rates, right? Because it's, it's about a two- to 3% range higher, right, than right. whatever the 10 years at. So how does the Fed relieve the pressure of this potentially pushing bond rates up? Right. They try to cut Fed funds down. Right. Try to get the 10-year to steepen up a little bit and the short-term to come down because, again, repo is overnight, short-term implications. Yes. So they'll try to, I guess, ease their way into a normalized yield curve as the Treasury rates start to rise. Because this would be bad for them, right? Then by cutting the rates, it'll it'll keep companies from selling off their, their bonds, right? Hopefully, uh, if they can contain it. Yeah. If this gets too bad and too far, then the Fed uh, will be forced to cut rates. If if they doesn't get too, I guess, out of control too fast, then they can hold rates for a little bit longer, and then they can hope that this doesn't become a problem later on. But this certainly could become an issue that, frankly, has reverberating it ramifications like i don't know starting a recession yeah exactly uh, not just a slow session no not a softy big old hardy a tom hardy if you will <laughs> tom hardy yeah what's your favorite tom hardy movie I, it's hard to get over tom hardy's bane yeah that's gotta be it right yeah odin's a big tom hardy guy am i yeah aren't you wasn't he in that that wrestling movie you, you like made me watch Oh, shit. What was it called? The Warrior? Fighter? Yeah, The Warrior. Uh, it wasn't called Loki? <laughs> Dude, this was like, how many years ago? Five years ago? Mm. Yeah. I'm watching Loki, though. Are you? Yeah, we're down to one episode a week. What do you mean? I got, yeah. time, to watch, I got time to watch the show now. Down to one episode a week of what? Of this. Dude, you just told me, before we even got in the door, you said, my wife's so happy she's got plans for us Thursday night. Yeah, I can watch Loki. That was not the plan Thursday night, right? What are you doing with your wife on Thursday night? What do you mean? What was the plan? What's she, she doing? We're going to watch Loki. That's a lie. It is. <laughs> That's a lie. When I send you a photo, you'll I see. I know your wife. What are you guys doing before Loki? Hanging out with the kids, trying to be the best dad I can that, be. Yeah. <laughs> you don't like that. Why? What's wrong with that? This is why people find you disingenuous. This is why Jeff doesn't like our 75% of the banter. No, he does. Come on now. Stop because that. you're not telling us what you're doing with the wife. Stop that. Adam made his first basket. Look at in, that. In a game. Wow. Wow. Just avoiding Odin it. Odin saw it, too. 
I saw nothing. I'm very hey, happy. You don't come to you don't come to his games. He asks all the time, "Where's Uncle Chris?" No, he doesn't. He doesn't ask about me at all. It is. I called you when you were at his game. You're like, "I have to go into the huddle right now." Fuck these kids. <laughs> I said that part. No, you didn't say. That I didn't part. say that part. Okay. Yeah, you, again, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. What were you telling? You know, some of your wife on Thursday. We're gonna watch Loki. So something that Chris and I really wanted to make sure we touch on on today's episode while we still have some time. Why, man? What do you mean, why? 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 What is so like sacred <laughs> about? What I do with my wife on Thursday nights? Yeah. We'll probably do a date night, man. I don't know. I'll figure something out. You can't say maybe something like that? Something, maybe make her some steak. Why can't you just say that? What do you mean? I haven't decided yet. Where are the kids going to be? Wait, hold on. Oh. I'm very confused. I'm calling you out right now, too. You said, I was excited because there are plans. Yeah. So now you're did. like, oh, yeah. I might make steak. Or because might... I'm going to make the plans. The plans don't have... She doesn't know. She doesn't need to know. That's not true at all. What's well, not true? Uh... Yeah, no. <laughs> Get out of here. I'm all just right. saying, if there was one pair of pants in the room, she would be wearing them. That's a fact. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I know. She's my better half. I, I have no problem with that. Yeah. So what is she planning to do? We all, we all know we all know that, too. Oh, I know what it is. What is it? Your secret's safe with me. You're fine. Yeah? Yeah, it's fine. Go ahead. I'll it it would emasculate you. I don't want to do I'll that. I'll let you share it. Huh? That's okay. He's getting his wrist lasered? My no, wrist. no. <laughs> my wrist gonna, lasered? That's she's not going to take him to do that. Right. So, where, did you guys actually find a theater with the Barbie movie still playing? What? I don't understand this movie. Is it, you will on Thursday night? Did you watch it? No. Oh, dude, have you seen it? Yeah. Is it any good? It's okay. Yeah. It's, it's Chris good. is like, you're not helping my cause, bro. It's good. <laughs> All right. This from CNBC. Here's why it's so important to start saving and investing in your 20s. Okay, so between the high inflation that we've experienced over the last two years, the new student loan debt that recently came online, and the rising costs of rent and medical expenses, we thought it's it should be really important for us to touch on some key things that we think if you're in your 20s and you're, and you're looking to start investing, these are the things that you should be looking to do. Um, the article itself really wanted to dive into compound interest, which is a component that I know we're going to be speaking about um, when we go over the some of the four components that we think is important and why you should be investing in your 20s. But it goes on to say, if you invest $2,000 a year, which is just approximately $166 a month from the age of 19 to 27, and don't save anything beyond that point, to assume your investments yield on average a 10% rate, okay, which is what the S&P 500 tends to give on average, right? Over the course of your lifetime, you'll end up with a million dollars by the time you're 65. That's just investing for eight years. You know, I hate that example because I think it's really difficult for somebody who's younger to understand that in the context of like their life because you don't think about mortality when you're 27. But you should. I know you should, but again, social media has made us a very different society. It has, but if you if you just take in the second part to that, which gives you the flip side to that example, on the other hand, if you wait to start investing when you're 27 and invest that same amount for the next 38 years, mm -hmm. so an additional 30 years of investing, okay, but you waited to start until the age of 27, you'll end up with $800,000, $200,000 less just by you not starting 10 years earlier. And I agree. You should you should start investing early, uh, but I think investing is a progressive load, right? So you have a, a bunch of suggestions here that we're going to go over, but 
Mm-hmm. One of the things I'll say is it doesn't really matter which one of these you start with. Obviously, some of these are going to be a lot easier to start with than others. Mm-hmm. What really does matter is that you start with something, you get comfortable with it, and then you find something else you can also invest in eventually as well. One of the common mistakes I see people make is they'll invest in one thing like the stock market. They'll do something smart, like invest in low-cost index funds, or they'll invest in a stock they really, really believe in, and it does well. And then they'll sell it, and then they'll go buy like a house. Right. And that's all well and good. You get some equity, but then you've also lost a little bit of this diversification. Yes. You should plan to continue to have a little bit of the stock market or a good amount. Of, I mean, take whatever earnings you want to off the table. Absolutely buy real estate if you need to at the time, but continue to keep that diversity and do both. Right. When you have a narrow focus and you're only capable of doing one and you're really a, a one-trick pony, you wind up robbing yourself of the stability of having diversification and the potential growth in markets that are very different in different economies. And I think that's what tends to scare people and keep them on the sidelines is the fear of you always hear it from from movies to the classroom or at school or even people that you know that are talking about this. They say diversify your portfolio. And I think that starts to scare people and keeps them on the sidelines and not get started early. Yeah, but I mean when you talk about the stock market, that can be intimidating. Like you gotta be in the bonds, you gotta oh, you gotta have some reoccurring revenue, you gotta have some, you know, something that pays dividends and it, it can become overwhelming. Right. But there's a way to do it where you just go into the stock market with consistent reoccurring investments, you dollar cost average, and that's all you really need to know for the stock market purposes until you get a bigger portfolio or you need somebody else to manage it. If you're just starting out, that's a great place to start. And most people in America, especially in their 20s, their first stock investment will actually not be something they went out and bought. It'll be part of their 401k. Yes. They'll get a job. It'll offer them a 401k, typically with an employer match. Do not make the mistake of not matching 100% of what your employer will match, right? If they're going to give you a 5% match or a 3% match, you should be contributing that much because that's just free money you're going to get. Right. Now, I'm not an advocate of saying, oh, put in 10%. Fuck it. YOLO. Right. Because you're not going to be able to tap into that money until you become of retirement age without tax consequences. Exactly. So I say maximize your employer match. Hopefully, you're working someplace that has a pretty decent employer contribution. Right. And if you can do that, do that. That's a great place to start. I mean, it doubles, it'll literally double your money, right? If you yeah. can, if you do work and you, and if you don't utilize it, you're leaving money on the table. Leaving money on the table. And I know when you're young, if you're not making a lot of money, you sound you feel like, okay, 3%, 5%, wherever you're at in California, you're paying taxes in the state. You're also paying federal taxes. And you're thinking like, why would I give up an extra couple of percentage? Because I need that for my cost of living. Like I need that to live. Right. But you got you to gotta remember, there's a, there's a famous video that circles around the internet. I don't know when it released, but it was about Warren Buffett, and he was talking about the first stock that he ever bought. It was actually three shares of a company. Mm. It was like $114, okay? And he said, had I just taken that and not bought that stock, and I would have just taken that $114 and put it in the S&P 500. Today, that, that one, those three shares, that $114, would have been worth over $400,000. And how many recessions did we go through during that time? Yeah, I know. Right? Yes, I get it. He had to wait a long time to get there. But the whole point is, even if you can only do a little bit and just put away whatever you can for now, and one day you'll be surprised at how much it'll get to. So I will say, this is one of those things where I think on social media, whenever I criticize someone like a Grant Cardone, 
people are like, oh, Chris, you're criticizing him. And honestly, in a lot of ways, I'm not really criticizing him as much as I'm criticizing the structure. So I look at something like that, like the stock market, you put money in, it's liquid. If you really need to sell it, you could at any point in time. Right. Number two, that's a tried and tested and true thing. Like you've seen it A to Z, that works, it's real. The greatest investors of our our age, frankly, and probably for our lifetimes in Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett believes in it and proves it out. Right. Time and time and time and, again. And say they say just keep it simple. Don't overcomplicate the process. Whereas when you talk about these real estate syndications, people don't realize you can go into a real estate investment trust, give you the same liquidity, gives you a similar upside potential. If they sell a property in the real estate investment trust, you can get that back. Gives you the same tax benefits. And there are some nuance-based differences. But with somebody like a syndicator like Grant Cardone, and his documents and all the cases that I've read require you to be in the fund for 10 years, and he's never actually liquidated one of these properties yet, there's a good probability that your 6% dividend, if that's what you're getting, on a quarterly basis, it you know that's good money coming in. I guess it's okay. It's not great. I mean, some of the better REITs out there pay between ten and twelve percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the best pay like fourteen to twenty percent. Now, uh, can anybody just get get in on those? Or? Yeah, that's just buying on the stock market, right? You, you can literally just go in and buy like a piece of stock. You don't have to be like an accredited investor for the syndications. I'm sorry for the syndications. Uh, you generally speaking, you have to be an accredited investor. You have to have a certain net worth, and the accredited is a very nebulous term. It can mean anything depending on how they define it. But generally speaking, you have a certain net worth and a certain amount of liquidity. Yes. But there are funds, and Cardone has a couple of them, that take non-accredited investors, which means anybody can really invest. Right. That being said, your money's locked up. It's a liquid for 10 years. Right. And if there is an upside potential, it's not quite as proven as the stock market, and it's based on the real estate valuations. And one of the things we started off talking about is people really, really don't understand the, the need to diversify. If you're going to go into that, okay, you're really making a stock-like investment into real estate. Mm-hmm. You're not really buying stock, but you're also not really buying real estate, and it's not at your discretion when you can get out. Yes. And the reason why I don't like it is the same reason I tell people don't maximize. You don't don't go more than the maximize employer match in your 401k. Maximize what you can get from your employer for free because that's free money. But, again, you can't touch that until your retirement age. If you have something bad that happens, you can borrow against your 401k, but it's really not in your best interest to do so. And you got to be careful, too, because um, don't always bank on that because I do know some companies out there, they have definitions to what they consider a hardship withdrawal. And it's very difficult. Yeah, Right. It, like it, it has to meet their requirements, and you have to provide supporting documentation mm-hmm. to prove that you are going through that hardship. So not as easy to do. Right. And exactly my point. So I like to tell people, like, look, if you, if you go into something like that, there's a benefit to locking yourself in to retirement age. Yes. Yeah, I get that. You want an employer match, it's free money, leave it on the table. Plus, because you're locking yourself in, you're kind of guaranteeing yourself the returns by age 65 that we talked about at the start of the example, right? Right. And then you take the rest of your money and you go into investments, like you go buy a piece of real estate for yourself or to invest in that you can control. If you need to tap into it, you tap into it. Mm-hmm. And your only tax consequences are the capital gains. Right. So let's talk about some of the investments uh, in your 20s, long-term investments in funds like the S&P. Okay, so I had listed one of the main things is to invest in long-term uh, investment funds like index funds or ETFs. Mm-hmm. Um, something that we've routinely cited on the show is the S&P 500, which, <coughs> excuse me, is just you know the 500 top companies um, in the market and you know some of the ones that are near the bottom. They flow in and they flow out. You always know you're investing in. It's tracking the values of the top 500 companies, right? So um, it's you're protecting yourself by 
not getting the answers to the questions you don't know. You just know that they're the 500 best, right? Mm -hmm. And this routinely, on average, returns you a 10% uh, return, right? Historically speaking, yes. Historically speaking. When I do all of my models, just as an underwriter for myself, if I'm like tracking my own investments, I like to look at this and just account for 8%. I just take 2% off the top, and I'm like, I'm only going to assume I make 8% off of this. Okay. Right? That's me personally. Two of the funds that we um, that we've cited on the show before that I I like personally is Vanguard's S and P five hundred fund. That's the uh, their symbol is V F I A X and Fidelity F X A I X. Remember, this is not an endorsement or this isn't advice, but this is just uh, ones that I personally have used in the past. If you are going to look into these index funds, two things that I think that you should be considering when you're looking at them: look into what the minimum investment is. Some of them have a minimum investment and some of them don't, right? And also look into your expense ratio, right? The expense ratio on these are really, really small. That, that's why I like Vanguard for a number of reasons. But uh, to give you an idea of some of the Vanguard stuff that I hold, I started buying when I was really, really young, when I was in my early 20s, and I still hold today. Uh, I bought IVOO. Uh, that's Vanguard's S&P mid-cap 400 index fund. Okay. So it's, uh, they're bigger than your small cap stocks, obviously. Uh, I bought uh, VCSH when I was really young. This is a Vanguard short-term corporate bond index. Gives you a little bit of the bond exposure. Uh, let's see here. In my early 20s, I bought VEA as well. Uh, this is a Vanguard tax-managed fund. Um, develop, developing markets, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, I bought VIOO, uh, Vanguard S&P small cap 600 index fund. Okay. I bought VOO. This is probably the one I bought the most of when I was in my early 20s. This is, is their Vanguard 500 index fund. Right. And then I also bought VWO, uh, which is another low cost. It's an emerging markets fund. So this way I got exposure to bonds. I got exposure to emerging markets. I got mid caps. Right. I got S&P. It gave me a good broad spectrum of the aggregate types of stocks you can buy of certain sizes in certain markets. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And it was those, and again, it was very heavily weighted towards VOO because, again, Warren Buffett and some of my early thoughts. And as I got older and I got a little more free money, I started investing in stocks that I believe in, like Tesla. Mm -hmm. um, what's another one that I hold? Apple. I, bought, I own a lot of Apple. I owned that before the, the dividend splits. I, owned, uh, I actually don't own that much Disney. Okay. I started buying Disney later on, actually, it was, as my son got older. Oh, okay. When my son got into Disney, I was like, you know what? I'm going gonna to buy a Disney stock. Now. Nice. So... Just to go down this path, the next thing, because this also ties into all these funds that we're talking about, is investments to start making in your 20s is, as we touched on earlier, your 401k. But if your company doesn't have a 401k, you yourself can invest in a retirement account, whether that be a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA. The only difference between the two really is the way the money goes in. With a traditional IRA, um, your, your, the money that's going in is before getting taxed. A Roth IRA is is after tax money, okay? So I'm going to have a very contradictory opinion on this. Personally, yes, I don't like this. I, I like I like retirement accounts like 401ks mm -hmm. if you got an employer match. For the IRAs, and unless you have a tax need to do this, like you're just making a lot of money, you have a CPA, you have people around you that think this is a structured way for you to best handle your finances, if you're just starting out in your 20s, mm -hmm. I don't recommend this. Don't recommend. Okay. A lot of 20-year-olds 20, 20 will try to do something like this, and they don't have the discipline to keep it going forever. Got you. Right? And in, in order for this to work, you need to have discipline and consistency. And frankly, there's there's issues if you stop. You can't just put money in when you want to and not. 
And it has to be consistent over time. There is a cap on these two, right? For the 401k, you can uh, contribute approximately $23,000 a year right mm -hmm. now. It tends to go up around $500 every single year. I made sure that one comment on YouTube corrected me. I'll never yeah. forget that. <laughs> I think I cited one from like five years ago. Yeah. But um, for the traditional Roth IRA, it's around $6,500. So the one thing that I like about the Roth IRA is that um, it's really good and known for estate planning. Yeah, which again, if you've got more money yes. and you're in a different position in life, I would say probably not in your 20s, right. and you have the discipline and consistency of income, great, do it. I recommend it all the time to a lot of people. But for your, in your early 20s, I would say if you don't have a 401k and you're making money and you want to know where to put your money, real estate. Yes. Real estate, stock market, where you can self-direct and you can don't have to wait for retirement. You still get the benefits of growth. You don't get some of the tax advantages of deferred you know, tax benefits for income and stuff like that, but you do get the ability to have easy access to your money. If you notice, one of the things I always recommend in your 20s is you have the ability to pull money out because shit happens when you're in your 20s, right? Yes. Everything's great, and something happens, you get a challenge in your life, you got to liquidate something, you might as well have access to some of that capital. Right. Um, and that leads us right into the next component is real estate, right? Oh, yeah. Something that we've always... <coughs> Sorry. Get choked up it's over... Oh, get, I get choked up over this. Over real estate? Yeah, over real estate. Um, something that we we believe because this is our bread and butter and something that is tr near and dear to your heart, I know, because this is the name of the game you play. Yeah, I mean, unintentionally so. Uh, I, I knew growing up that my dad believed in buying real estate for passive income, but I didn't really fully understand it until I became an underwriter myself. Okay. And the reason why I really wanted to become an underwriter when I was younger was because it gave me access to see all these people who were buying real estate's financials. Mm-hmm. At the time, I didn't even appreciate these were mostly real estate, wealthy people, you know. And one of the things I found is a lot of people who, who owned real estate didn't own stock. And a lot of people who owned a lot of stock didn't own real estate. Wow. Very few people own both because a lot of people who are in the real estate world, they want to, you know, gather up all this capital and they go buy a piece of real estate. They want to leverage that piece of real estate and buy another piece of real estate. They don't buy, go buy stocks. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was very rare you found somebody who had more of a robust portfolio that was equally managed. But me personally, when I was younger, I knew I was already investing in a 401k. Uh, I knew I was doing the employer match and I had saved some money for other investments and real estate became that investment of choice. And the more and more I, I understood real estate, the more and more I thought, okay, I know there's a stigma to being a landlord. I get that. But at the same time, if you pay, if you have enough free cash flow to pay somebody three to 5% property manager fee, which I would say somewhere in there is normal. Uh, if you're my sister, you're extorting me for 10%, but whatever. Um, you have something that really runs and gives you consistent monthly income. So I bought my first piece of property at the time in Oklahoma, the Midwest. And uh, it was scary as shit. But that first piece of property, and again, deals like that don't come around anymore. The prices have changed. I didn't put a whole lot of money down, and I was making 400 bucks a month on it. How did you get comfortable with the idea of buying a piece of real estate that you are not close to? Because I believe that would be really intimidating for me that I can never just go check on the property if I wanted to. Yeah, my dad never did that, didn't believe in it. And my uncle's philosophy was if I couldn't get there in 45 minutes, I wouldn't buy it. Uh, my dad had owned a, a couple of apartment complexes, smaller stuff, nothing like larger, and then over leveraged it. And the Great Recession really took a lot of that away from him. And I saw him lose a lot of that. Mm. Um, actually, probably even before that, frankly. Um, my uncle, later on in life... Uh, much after I, long after I started buying real estate, uh, he started really start, started getting into Section 8 housing, which I'm not a big fan of just because it's a different demographic and takes a different type of work. 
Uh, but he's essentially retired, and that's what he does now. Uh, that's kind of his philosophy. I always took a different path. I wanted to buy newer properties because at the time, I didn't have the money to fix these things up. Something went wrong. Like, I didn't ah. have a lot of free free money. Like, I needed these things to perform, right? Right. So I started buying properties built after 2003. Again, I started buying property like in 2009 or 10 or something like that. Okay. Maybe actually, maybe earlier. Um, hmm, I have to think about it. But anyway, so they were relatively new buildings that I was buying, right? And I bought four bedroom, two baths in the Midwest where there wasn't a lot of competition for multifamily housing. Was there a reason for that? Was it strategic? The four bedroom, two bath versus like a, sm- a smaller property? Yeah, there was a little bit of thought that went into that. Uh, four bedroom, two bath, although to me, like there's not enough bathrooms. I knew that a lot of people who were looking to have a place for them and their children, and again, Midwest children are common, as a front yard, backyard, usually a large piece of property in that, in that, that particular size. But that's usually the, the kind of the, the demographic that doesn't have enough money to buy, may have like three or three kids, you know, mm-hmm. and it kind of fits. For some reason, that just has better rent like in the market. Oh, and, you, and probably you can um, have more seasoned rents where they'll stay, stay for longer. You're not going to get a whole lot of turnover. Yeah, I mean, it varies a whole lot depending on the tenancy and, and the time of year and stuff like that. But generally speaking, most of them have stayed for at least a couple of years. I just had one tenant uh, re-up for another, like, year and a half, two years or something like that. I think it was two years. Oh, so you do offer more than just another year? Yeah, I'll offer you a two-year two year lease for, I think, usually about, like, a $50 increase. And if you do a single year, uh, it's usually a $100 increase. There's something to be said about that, too. We were talking earlier about diversifying your portfolio, right? Some of the investments that we were talking about earlier is really targeting, having a target date, right? At some point in the future when you're going to retire. But investments like this improve your monthly cash flow now. They do, but I also, I look at them from the same perspective as a retirement. Like, I don't live off this money. I will admit I've been tapping into a little bit of it recently okay. <laughs> just to shore up some free cash flow shortages. But uh, I look at these more as long-term retirement. So my goal is not, hey, Chris, live off this $400 a month, which has now grown as the properties have grown. My goal is, okay, when I pay this off, right, I'm going to have that much more free cash flow. And then I started to realize as I got older, because, you know, you're not in your 20s anymore, you go, wait a minute. I get an interest deduction for paying interest on in these things. Mm-hmm. I get a depreciation schedule for owning these things. Once that depreciation schedule is maximized and I've got equity in this property, do I then 1031 exchange into a bigger property or do I say, okay, I don't need those tax benefits right now? There's so much to break down. There's, there's a lot to break down in there. And I would say your perspective as you get older changes. Mm-hmm. At this point in my life and my journey, what I would like to do is probably have, I mean, some of these are, are quickly approaching, like some of my old less than $100,000 on right now. Okay. But um, at this point in my life, I'd rather pay them off and have like $2,000 a month in free cash flow from each one. Right. Right. And not worry about it. Then I would like 1031 exchange to a bigger property and have to go through all that whole thing again. Right. It's just easier. Like I'm getting this like minimal stage in my life, but I also, I also have the luxury of doing that. Yeah. When you're younger, here's what I'll say. Even if it pays you $400 a month of free cash flow, as long as it's positive, even if it's $200 a month of free cash flow, as long as it's positive, I would recommend buying it. Even if it's skinny, it's very, very skinny. If you are pretty confident that the rental market is there, that you can have somebody in that property and that occupancy won't be a significant challenge. Right. And if you are confident that you can earn money at not top of market rents, like you got some room to grow into, then I would say it's almost always better to buy when you can, even if the cash flow is light, because you can always improve that over time. Mm -hmm. And you have somebody paying down your mortgage for you. When you're in your early 20s, you should not be buying these properties to improve your cash flow. 
You should be buying these properties to improve your position in the future. These are your retirement account, particularly if you don't have a 401k. Nice. It's a perspective thing, right? Got it. Your primary early 20-year-old age, you should be making money working, okay? And unless real estate is your primary job, you should be making money working at whatever it is you do for a living. And a lot of realtors make this mistake. They'll sell properties, earn commission, sell properties, earn commission, and they won't build this passive income from this. Mm -hmm. That is your job. Make money making commissions. God forbid you're ever in the hospital, you get sick, something happens to you, you should have enough property that'll bridge the gap. But while you are working and earning in your primary job, this extra money should get saved and reinvested into another piece of property when the time comes. You should not be planning to live your life based on this stuff. Right. We know a lot of real estate investors in this space that still have W-2 jobs. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. Myself included. Yeah. Yeah. And let's go into this last one here is education and skills. Something yeah. that we routinely cited on the show Nice little side thing to have is your real estate license. I, I preach that to everybody I speak to. I get a lot of pushback on that. Yeah, because I think um, people try to make it seem like it's easier than than uh, it actually is. It is hard to sign up deals to gain the trust of people. But look, at the end of the day, having it, you, family members are going to buy properties. A lot of people don't know anybody in their family. So you're going to have to get your name out there, right? Aside from that, you yourself someday are going to buy your mm -hmm. own properties if you're if you're looking uh to invest in real estate like we mentioned earlier in the state that you live in right this is something that you can do oh, I, I recommend it solely for that reason let, let me put it differently in california i'll use california as an example okay if you're in california and you pass a real estate exam you learn real estate appraisal real estate finance right you learn real estate principles you learn all the concepts that you as a future real estate investor would want to know mm -hmm. i had somebody literally approach me not too long ago and say hey look i want to learn about real estate investing uh, can you mentor me? I'll pay you. I'm like, no, go get a real estate license and then come back. Yeah. And she was like, was it required to do the job? No, of course not required to do the job, but now there's my mentorship. Right. Right. Exactly. You just think it's a shortcut. She's like, well then yeah, but this isn't a shortcut. And I said, but it is. It's also a discount plan for you whenever you buy, because you're going to get, but I have to be under a broker. I said, yeah, you do. And guess what? That's going to be good for you. Mm -hmm. That's also mentorship, except the brokers, you're not paying the broker to do that. Right. Depending, as long as you go to the right brokers, there's some that charge you for like a desk fee, stuff like that. Right? And then what happens? You're under a broker for a year or two, right? Because because as a having a real estate license, you have to be under a broker. In California. You have to be under, underneath a, a licensed real estate broker. And some of them will let you park your license under them. Why would they do that? Because they want to make their, their real estate firm look bigger. Yeah. Right? Maybe they'll charge you an annual fee of something you know, or maybe like a, a monthly fee that's nominal for whatever services. There are plenty of brokers out there that charge you almost nothing, if not nothing. Right. Park it for two years. Even if you don't ever do a transaction those two years, go sit for the broker's license afterward. Yeah. Guess what? Now you got free reign and autonomy with a broker's license to go buy a property whenever you want, and the entire commission is yours. Yep. It also gives you access to things like the MLS, the multiple listing service, which uh, until today and presumably until the future for a while, gives you access to the, the system that everybody uses to list their properties on. Right. Which means you can search through and find deals on your own directly in the system that everybody's looking at. And have the context to reach out to them, right? But I think when I was younger, I probably didn't have the appreciation for this particular section. And I still bastardize things that you see on social media about gurus selling courses and enrichment. Alex Hermosi does a really good job of explaining his take on this. And I used to respect it a lot. And then at the same time, I saw him say that his wife paid for, uh, I think it was somebody's mentorship that 
it was like really, I think it was, was it Grand Cardone? Mm, yes. It was Grand Cardone or something like that. And I look at that and I go, okay, that's not what I'm talking about here. When I was younger, I didn't value school the way I should. And I probably could have gone to better schools. I probably could have had a better pedigree of an education. Right. As I got older, I realized that I really enjoyed the challenge of learning things. If I can go back in time in my 20s, you get so much more free time than you realize you do. Go get a certification. Go get that real estate license. Go, I'm a licensed general contractor. I got it late in life. Mm-hmm. But in your 20s, you could do that easily, right? You have the time to get these licenses that, that may help bolster your professional profile. Right. If you don't want to go to school because you don't want to pay for school and you don't want to get in, go in debt, fine. But getting a contractor's license teaches you a whole hell of a lot about real estate. And you'll save a whole hell of a lot of money when you do buy real estate and you could fix up the property yourself. Yeah. So if you're going to ingratiate yourself in something like real estate, do that. If you don't want to go into real estate, fine. Go get an insurance license if you want to learn about insurance. Go get uh, you know, a series, whatever. Pick one. There's tons yeah. of them. Right. Uh, license out there. Go become a CFA, right? A chartered financial analyst, which is very much respected. It takes usually three years. There's a number of paths you can go down that are not as expensive as traditional school, which will still give you insight and education and are very much respected by the professional communities. In the worst case event scenario that you say, you know what? I want to go work for somebody else for some time, and this is my resume. Right. Not bad. Not bad at all. And, I mean, you could even take it a step further. If you don't want to go that far out, you could teach yourself a new skill, something that we've all done on the podcast ourselves is we all learned how to edit. Yeah, Final Cut, baby. Final Cut. I mean, you also do the audio, right? So Logic that's Pro. Yeah. Logic Pro. By learning those skills on the side, it allowed us to pick up a five to nine hustle, right? And be able to do stuff on our own without having to pay somebody and have them extort us. Yeah, again. Uh, a great example of that in my in my youth was is I started to build websites with HTML. I started to, to build websites in Macromedia Flash, what was then Macromedia Flash. And those skills have helped me learn how to edit now because Macromedia was a lot like editing in Final Cut. It was, it was a really good. Okay. So you really never know where those skills will come in handy. And, and like website development, stuff like that, that really taught me a lot about whenever I go to somebody else's website and the things I should look for. These skills that you think are just hobbies that you get into really may translate later on to business. Okay. But I learned all of those skills, again, between the hours of 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. When I wasn't going out and doing some things with other people. Now I'm not talking about hustle culture. I'm talking about how I just really wanted to learn things and improve. And I, I tried a website business that didn't do very well. I've tried uh, editing uh, websites. And what was, I was always stunned with stuff that was one on Macromedia Flash. I thought it was uh, impressive. I've started a number of businesses that didn't work out. My current real estate company is not my first one. The first one I shut down because I wanted to go work for somebody else because I just wasn't meant for it. I thought about starting escrow companies. I thought about getting an appraisal license. All those paths are worthwhile to go down in your 20s. Right. You never know if that skill set, even if you fail at it, will teach you something that might be valuable in business later on. Mm-hmm. Um, we were, I was in the car ride with Adam like several months ago, and uh, him and Aria were asking me who's the smartest person in the world. And you said me, obviously. <laughs> obviously, right? jeez. Right? I used to think Stephen Hawking, but now I've got a whole different perspective. Of, Can't of, go down that path, bro. Yeah. Right? Mm, nope, not doing it. Not doing it. I mean, you can't even claim plausible deniability. Nope. Mm-mm. But I, I, it struck me. I was like, I don't even. I really don't even know how to answer that question. What What constitutes someone that's smart? It depends on what what you consider, right? So, what response would you give Carter if Chat GPT? Chat GPT. Yeah, 
Exactly. <laughs> You're welcome, son. Make friends. Yeah. Go ask him uh, how sexy daddy is. Why is it him? Why not her? ChatGPT? Yeah. Mine's it's name. Chatty. No, mine's name Bob. Bob. Oh, you named yours Bob? Yeah. Bobby? Hey, Bob. I have a question for you, Bob. You can do it's that. It's just as grumpy as the Bob in my life, too. You can do that, huh? No, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I use ChatGPT every day. Yeah. And you know what? I'm kind of shocked. So I'll get, every once in a while, I'll get an email from like a journalist saying like, I want like uh, a quote on this. And they'll say like in bold font or something below it, no AI responses. Okay. And I always thought like, I don't, I don't use AI responses, but I will fact check myself with AI from time to time. But uh, do you really know? <laughs> like, how do you know? How do you know? Is there like a, a chat GPT for chat GPT? I think. Hey, did you create this? We had a coworker in the office telling me that the teachers in the school have a system now that they could run it through. Yeah, I think that's different, though, right? That's to see if you no, coded no. or cheated, or is it? No, just... no, no, no. They used to have this thing for plagiarism. That mm -hmm. that's still there, right? But they have something now for AI. That's going to be useless in a year. Yeah. When ChatGPT five rolls out, like that's fucked. Game over. So I guess my question is this: Okay, if you got to go back to blue books, right? Right. Or you got to go. You have to be like laptops that are like locked down. And it's got to be in the classroom writing. You can't do this at home. Yeah. So all these people that are out there creating memes of, man, they taught us cursive for nothing. It's all coming back now. Yeah. hundred percent. Cursive. What a waste of time, huh? I can write in cursive. I can too, but like. I could never get my art For us right. right now. What a waste of time. I don't ever use it anymore. Ever. Ever. You don't even sign your name in cursive. You just do this thing. Like a loop. I don't want to call it out on the show. On social media, I saw there's a website that'll actually. Oh, I saw this. They'll make you a cool signature. Yeah. And then give you like a bunch of like stencils so you can learn how to draw your new cool signature. Yeah. And I read their like frequent asked like frequently asked questions like, I change my signature. Does my driver's license be changed? No, but you can. I mean, the whole like bullshit legal, like real basic stuff. I almost pulled the trigger on it because my signature sucks. Really? Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of mine either, actually. But I got cheat codes people don't know about. Since it's just us talking, I'll give you the cheat codes. I know your cheat codes. Do you? What? what Go is ahead. It? When you, when you spell out your name in full, uh huh. That mean that symbolizes something else. Does it not? So my signature is not the bullshit squiggly lines. Yes. My signature is actually the handwriting underneath it. Yeah, you told me. Yeah. You told me this. And the way I sign it. Right. So if you sign my signature and I don't see that stuff, it ain't my signature. Right. Yeah. Smooth. So just to wrap it up, what I did tell Adam is, I don't know how to answer that, Adam, but what I, I will say is the smartest people in the world are the ones that are most curious. Never stop asking questions. Cerebral. Last out of the world. Oh, Rune. <laughs> Cerebral doc. And he, guess what? It comes back to bite me in the ass. Now he's asking me questions all through the night. Questions? Like, questions? <laughs> questions, and I'll be like, Adam, go to sleep. Right, you're waking up your sister. He's like, but you told me to be curious. Like, fuck. This kid. I, I know you love being a dad and you embrace it. And I do too. The best part of my night is putting Carter to bed and laying down next to him. I get it. Okay. I love those moments, man. I, I know, I know you do. I'm not gonna take them away from you. I, I look, but I think Jeff wants to hear something personal. That about is personal, you. bro. You won't even talk about your date night, man. My date my date night. It's disingenuous. You tell shit. me about your date night in Beverly Hills. Oh, when with Spago? Yeah. We stayed at uh, the Melbourne, Ball. which used to be the montage, I think. Ball soul. last weekend? Oh, actually, we didn't pay for it. It was complimentary. Oh, Black so card. Sorry. Why? Black card. Black card. Hold on. First of all. Let him say it. it Tell it me why. It is not 
a black card, okay? Is it not known as that? It is a darker than platinum card. Is it doing business as a black card? Uh, according to many people, it's just a Sharpie marker that's colored over the, the <laughs> platinum card. Uh, my wife is in this new thing. We went to a bar the night. Oh, my God. So unlike you, we went to World's Greatest Parents. We went to um, dinner in Los Alamitos. Okay. Um, and one of my wife's childhood friends is now a detective. And he's there with uh, his girlfriend and, you know, pleasant couple. We have dinner and we say, you know, let's just, we have a couple hours. Let's go to a bar before I have to go home. It's kind of creepy, though. What? Meeting a detective and you're just like, have you looked into me? Do I know if you looked into me? He's honestly one of the fucking nicest guys in the world. Like, I got nothing. That's Normally, the, I'd say some sarcastic that's shit. The card, that's the card he plays. No, he's just a fucking good dude. Yeah? Yeah, he's, you'll, you'll meet him. He's nice. I hope so. He's, he's fucking, he's, you know the stories you try to sell about being the world's greatest dad and it comes off disingenuous? Like, he's not a dad, but if he was, he'd probably go head to head with you. <laughs> in any event. Um, so we go to this bar. In Los Alamitos, it's, it's sketchy. Yeah. We pull up on my eye, Brian, I'm not going in here. We went in and um, it was, uh, it was kind of, it was dive bar, no, I, no liquor, just beer. So I was all in, but it was, it was really like a narrow, it was really honestly the same size as the studio, just twice as long. Okay. It's very, very narrow. And uh, my wife went to go pay. But at a place like this, that that is not what you pay you can't, with. Yeah, you can't do that. So she like discreetly like try to cover it and give it to the bartender who took it like quietly and discreetly. And her attitude changed the second she came back. What do you mean? How so? Like she was so nice all of a sudden. Like what? Because she thought she was going to get a bigger tip? I think so. I think so. And then she realized my wife was cheap, so. <laughs> so she's not no but she's she's really really my wife is really legitimately trying hard to watch like spending and count and learn like her patterns and i'm so proud yeah, yeah. oh that's awesome i'd love to hear that yeah. never never too late to learn i need to still learn like a bad spending habits what does that mean every time i go to the gas station fill up gas i gotta go inside and get something i don't have that problem anymore you remove that problem by getting an electric car. All electric, everything. Only problem they don't tell you what that is. Is honestly, it's not much. The maintenance way better. The cheaper, meh, it's questionable. Really? Yeah, man. The rapid chargers are not cheap, dude. Full like charge on my truck is like 50, 60 bucks. What? Yeah. That's because you charge at the office, though. You don't charge at home. No, the office is cheaper. The office, but it's only six point six kilowatts an hour. That takes for a four hundred mile range truck like mine. That that takes like. All day and then some. So why don't you charge at the house? Because Joanna's car's in the house and Carter owns the other side of the garage. And unlike you guys where, you know, you have this big-ass garage and space for, like, you know, multiple cars and a gym and shit, I don't have space for that. So I have to park outside. My car, my truck never sees the inside of the house. I'm pretty sure you have multiple cars in your garage and you have a gym. No, I've got my wife's Tesla in the garage. And your son's Tesla in the garage. My son's Tesla it is matter. a small <laughs> it doesn't, car. It doesn't matter. Semantics, bro. Two cars and a gym. Okay, so if that's that's the litmus test for what we're talking about here, then yes. how long have you had a full Equinox in your garage? <laughs> Why is that? I don't have a steam room. I don't have a sauna. I mean, I got the HVAC right there, but I got the, I got the water heater right there that's heating the place up. This this is why people find you disingenuous, bro. What do you mean, bro? You don't have a full squat rack in your garage? No. Half rack, baby. You don't have a treadmill in your garage? I do have a treadmill in my garage. Mm -hmm. What else do you have in your garage, site? I got a lap pull down. I got dumbbells from five all the way to eighty. I got uh, eighty. 
Yeah. That's that expensive shit. Yeah. Mine stop at 50. Saeed is doing the titty pop for anybody out there <laughs> who wants to see it. Our boy Hefe is not approving this segment. Yeah, Jeff is like, ah, damn it. Like, Come on, Jeff. Again. Don't do Jeff, this, Jeff, we do one show a week. You need this in your life. Come on, man. Stop playing with yourself. Arun, uh, we haven't really engaged with you a lot tonight, and I apologize for that. It's all good. I just assumed you've already gotten some kind of flu or temperature out there and you're dying. Yeah. A little bit. Back sweating. Do we got an hour and a half? Yeah. <laughs> supposed to be you got a full week to edit, so. bro. Time flies when you're having fun. Well. Yeah. You got anything, Odin? Nope. Christopher? I mean, Arun, one day you got to say yes. Something. Bro, I... I... I added some cotton. Uh... Jesus. All right. Let's just say goodbye now. <laughs> cotton. I added some cotton. <laughs> some tube socks. Good night, everybody. Mm. Cotton. <laughs>